The What Are We Doing podcast and the Aquatic Biosphere Project acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Welcome to today's Deep Dive episode. I'm so excited to share this conversation I had with Dr. Greg Stone. He's the chief ocean scientist for The Metals Company. And The Metals Company, as you'll soon learn, is what might be the future of electric vehicle batteries around the world. Now, Greg Stone is more than just a metals guy. He is a decorated marine scientist with over 10,000 dives to his name. And he's dove all around the world... He's gone down up to 18,000 feet below the surface, has lived in underwater habitats, proficient with underwater robotics, you name it, he's done it. He's an author, a National Geographic explorer, he was a science advisor for oceans for the World Economic Forum, he's created marine protected areas, he's done so many different things. So I'm so excited for him to speak for himself and tell you more about what he's done. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn a little bit more about the future of underwater metals and about ocean discovery. Air. Wasser. Bunny. G. Nippy. Omi. What are we doing? And how can we do better? Your one-stop shop for everything water-related from discussing water, its use, and the organisms that depend on it. For all the global issues that you really never knew all had to do with water. I'm your host, David Evans, from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, and I just want to ask you something. What are we doing, and how can we do better? So welcome to another deep dive episode of the What Are We Doing podcast. I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Greg Stone. So Greg, do you mind just giving yourself a quick introduction, telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? And I know uh, saying a quick introduction might be a lot because you seem to do quite a broad range of things. So sure, I, I can narrow it down. Yeah, I've been fascinated by the ocean since I was a child, and it came from watching TV, Jacques Cousteau and uh, Lloyd Bridges and things like that. But I didn't have a family that was in- interested in it. I just sort of found my way to it. And I decided quite early on I wanted to spend my time underwater. So diving was driving me. It was, it was, it was not science. It was not conservation. It was not anything else. It was diving. I just loved diving. It was going to be a... Uh, commercial diver actually i went down that road and looked into it and and then some guy in the industry pulled me aside and he said hey kid (laughs) this is not for you this is basically underwater construction work i think you've got a little more in you than this i said oh 
I said, what else can I do? And he said, well, look around. And I looked around and I saw marine, marine science and I said, oh, okay, I can do that. And it involves diving. So I went into that area and I started the career in um, fun, fun science, man. I was, you know, diving in submarines and I worked for the government. We ran the Alvin. I was in Japan for three years diving the Japanese subs. I was living underwater in habitats. I was living the dream. And then about the spring of 18, 1990 or so, I was diving in the Sea of Japan at 18,000 feet. It was quite a, quite a ways down there. It takes you three hours yeah. to drift down to that depth. And I got to the bottom, and the last thing I expected to see was a trash heap at a place where the light of day hadn't shone for billions of years. And I was I was shocked, and I um, I realized that this wasn't right, and that something had to be done about it. And this was before this was before there was any awareness of marine conservation. Okay, this was you got to put your mind back thirty years. Right, people were still thinking dilution is the solution, and you know, don't worry about it. Yeah. But I, I knew that wasn't the case. So I was open then. And about a year later, I got asked to, to start a marine conservation program in, at the New England Aquarium in Boston, which I did. And uh, that's when the cod fisheries were collapsing in the North Atlantic. It was really the blast off point for, uh, it was the wake up moment. And um, so I worked there conducting research. I, I did, did a PhD in dolphins that got caught up in fishing nets. I found a way to put acoustic pingers on the nets so they could hear the nets and they wouldn't get caught up in them. Did a lot of work on whales and dolphins. That was my first area of expertise. And then um, I went back to uh, deep sea research and invertebrates. And and I just started, you know, the people that know the most about the ocean are the people that spend the most time in the ocean and under the ocean. Right. It's not the people that study it. It's the people that are in it. I, I can't ever talk about this kind of stuff without bringing somebody else into the room who's deceased now. His name is Teddy Tucker, who was a tremendous mentor of mine. He was a Bermudian shipwreck diver. And I met him when I was uh, about 17. You know how sometimes important people in your life, if you want to call them mentors or you want to call them guides or whatever you want to call them they they appear in different forms and they they're not always recognizable at first and this guy he looked like he ran a gas station or something he had a strong bermudian accent he knew more about the ocean than anybody i'd ever met and uh he was famous for finding shipwrecks he found the first intact spanish galleon in the eight, in the 1950s so wow t- yeah yeah, if you, if you Google his name, Teddy Tucker. Teddy Tucker. Teddy Tucker, and, and you go back. He's on the cover of Time Magazine, Life Magazine. He was like the guy of the day. And he took me on. We got along, and we formed that age-old human relationship of uh, mentor, mentee, uh, assistant, you know, whatever you want to call it, something other than college, which is a fairly recent way of learning things, you know, colleges are only have only been around for a few hundred years. And in all the previous history of humanity, we learned in other ways. And that was mostly contact with people, talking with people, apprenticing with people. So in a way I apprenticed with him. He also uh, did the same thing with a guy named Peter Benchley who wrote Jaws. And Peter and I became Teddy's mentees, if you will. 
And uh, Peter was sort of sent off to write novels about the ocean, inspired by Teddy. Teddy was like a Yoda. Think of Yoda. He had that very unusual look about him. And and then with me, it was science and oceans. So we all went off our different ways. Then the three of us formed a team. We always got back together. Then uh, Peter came to me one day. He made a lot of money out of Jaws. He said, Greg, I'm sick of these documentaries they're making me do to promote Jaws and the girls in bikinis and going to the right. all this stuff. He said, I've noticed what you're doing is much more interesting. You know, you're out there uh, looking at things, you're creating marine protected areas, you're you're solving problems. He says, what can I do to help? And I said, well, you can do a lot. I said, you know, your name can carry quite a bit. So we started making films. We made a series of films together. I simultaneously kept doing expeditions for National Geographic and the Discovery Channel. And I would always try to do a, a movie, a popular magazine article, a science paper on a topic. And then I'd move on to something else because I wanted to communicate, get it out there as far as I could, but also have at the, at the basis of it a, uh, a strong backbone of science, a strong backbone of some certainty, because there's so much propaganda and, and speculation and people saying things they think, but they don't know around. Yeah. You've, got to, you've got to get something there at the base. So I, I did that for 10 or 15 years. And then I went into the Pacific Ocean. I'd always wanted to work in the Pacific ever since I was a kid. And I uh, made my way down there. I lived in New Zealand for 10 years. And then somebody asked me to go on an expedition to this group of islands I'd never heard of called the Phoenix Islands. And I said, well, why are we going there? And they said, well, they've never been dived and no one's ever really explored them. And I said, okay, I'm in. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) And we, it was a four day trip from Fiji. They're, they're very isolated. And I fell in the water there and it changed my life. I, I'd never seen a reef like that before. It was a, we had been studying reefs with a baseline of, a degraded reef. The baseline that we thought was healthy was right. actually not healthy. It was a degraded reef. And I found this reef system out in the middle of the Pacific that had never been tampered with, and it was in pristine condition. And uh, we created a uh, marine protected area around it called the Phoenix Islands Protected Area. It was the largest in the world at the time, the size of California. And that's when I caught the attention of the bingos, the uh, big international NGOs. And right. They pursued me for six years. They tried to hire me and I kept saying no. And and then I finally said yes, because it seemed to line up. And I, I drank the Kool-Aid for, let me, let me, I don't want to dish them because they, 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 <laughs> they, they are a good, they, they served a very important purpose in society and waking us all up. I started noticing um, all this money coming into these organizations of which I was an executive vice president and chief scientist. So I was, I was right up at the top and I could see the money coming in. I could see how we raised it and I could see how it was spent. And mm-hmm. it was, uh, I didn't think it was spent in the most efficient way. The, the, the top priority was to keep the organization going and pay fairly high executive salaries of which I was one of them. And the people that needed the most assistance were in the developing world, and they were not getting the full benefit of this uh, massive campaigns that were being launched to make awareness of it. And it, uh, it, it just didn't make sense to me. So I, um, I left uh, there, 
and went on to the World Economic Forum. And um, I was the science advisor of the UN Ocean Envoy for a little while. But I quickly realized that they were sort of doing the same thing, you know, just having a meeting. At the end of the meeting, if you schedule a new meeting, that was that was considered successful. There, there just wasn't really any, you know, action, anything that traction you get to, you get on. So I met this guy who um, had. Uh, did you know that mining is the worst thing we do on this planet? I, I know that there is definitely some some major issues with different mining practices. I didn't know that until until recently. That if you look at the biodiversity loss, the carbon production, the the, the indigenous community displacements, the, the the people that die doing the the activity, it it is the worst thing we do, and and we know that for certainty because we have thousands of years of, of experience. So this guy came up to me with this uh, idea, uh, which I was aware of, the polymetallic nodules that have formed on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. I've got one over there. If you want to see it, I can go get it. Yeah, that'd be very cool. Um, yeah, these these nodules are. Uh... At this point, Greg actually went off to go and grab one of these nodules, and you can see in the video this strange nodule, metallic-looking substance that is straight off the bottom of the ocean floor. I'll let Greg describe it a little bit, but if you want to see the full video of our interview and this little snippet, that'll be on our Public Place Network video page where you can see all of the video interviews and all of the video content that we have for this podcast now for season two they were first found in the 1800s during something called the challenger expedition which was the first oceanographic expedition ever and the british outfitted a gunboat and traveled around the world for two years and just tried to find out a little bit about the ocean and they pulled these things up can you see it yeah whoa and they're like a pearl, Dave. They um, they sit on the seafloor and they they accumulate atoms of what's in the seawater, like a pearl does, very slowly. This is probably ten million years old. Every element on the periodic table that you learned in high school is in the ocean. It's in it's in solution in the ocean, in different forms. And these nodules form and they reflect the relative abundances of the elements in the area of which they form. And it hmm. turns out in certain places, especially about halfway between Mexico and Hawaii, there's a very high concentration of nickel, cobalt, manganese, and copper, which are all the metals we need for all these electric cars that are coming up. You hear right. About which which is a it's, it's between a 600 and a thousand percent increase in demand over the next 10 20 years now if you go to a terrestrial solution for this you're looking at one percent grades of nickel laterites we've already taken all the high grades out pretty quickly and uh there's zero waste in this. This is 100% usable metal. And what's not metal is non-toxic and perfect additive for cement. There's no waste. Whereas, you know, in the traditional mine industry, it's 99% waste. And you end up with these, you, you have a mountain you take down and you use 1% of the mountain and the rest of the mountain, you've got to do something with it. It's, and it's, it's just, it's it's just horrible. And we we offshore these activities to developing countries because, you know, we don't want to have them in California here. So why not put them down in, um, you know, someplace in Africa or Indonesia where we're not going to see it? 
and there's mm-hmm. very, very little oversight. So this was a solution. And you can find enough of these things in an area less than 1% of the bottom of the seafloor to supply the humanity for hundreds of years. Until Really? The- they're, that, they're that plentiful? Yeah, it's like cobblestones. I can show you pictures of what they look like. Wow. They're very, very dense. And we can get these into a closed loop material. We're, we're in a material crisis. This guy got a Nobel Award for the chemistry a few months ago. And he said, this is not a question about uh, supply shortages here and there. He said, this is a question about a lack of atoms and molecules <laughs> of everything. Wow. He says, yeah. we're, running, we're running out of everything. And we've got to really rethink how we're going to do this. So this technique allows you to project a period of extraction, which would be 20, 30, 40 years, and then a period where you can close the loop because you can't destroy an atom. Atoms are perfectly recyclable, especially battery metals. And battery metals and other metals are absolutely essential for the new renewable energy future we, we, must, we must embrace. Otherwise, we're doomed. Right. This, to me, seemed like the most tangible, nitty-gritty, hands-on thing I could get involved with to stop this direction we're headed in. You know, I was in Paris as a science advisor at that climate summit. You know, we haven't, we haven't, we haven't stopped since then. We're still increasing our CO2 emissions. Yeah. And, and a guy did a paper the other day, and he said, if we continue to do that, it's going to be 150 degrees on this planet in about 200 years. I mean, wow. And, and you look around you, there's these monster tornadoes in Kentucky. There's uh, no lobsters left in Cape Cod. The Gulf Stream slowing down. Uh, upwelling is beginning to stop. The planet is coming undone in terms of us, things that we like. It'll always be here. There'll always be life. There'll always be things going on. But in terms of the kind of environment that we enjoy as people, and we have occupied this planet now, it's no longer Earth like it was 300 years ago. Now it's a new earth, people earth or something. Mm -hmm. Give it a new name. This guy uh, came up in my book launch when I published my book, Soul of the Sea in the Age of the Algorithm. And he had researched me, he chased me down and he said he wanted to pursue this industry. Um, It's regulated by the UN. It's been in development for 30 years. It's got a regulatory, uh, it's got everything you want. It's even got a, a system for sharing uh, resources with poor people. There's an offtake at the top of the structure that goes into a pool that is then redistributed to try to ease away at this north-south divide. It's not going to solve it, but it's one way to begin to get at it. And I knew he was going to take hell from the environmental community for this because mm-hmm. it says it's 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 called. As you're saying, mining is a hard sell, and and it uh, it has it has quite the reputation. Yeah, it sounds like it's quite different than an open pit mine typically would be. I mean, we, we're not unfamiliar to that up here in Canada as well. Yeah. But what are the main things that the environmental movement, I guess, is pointing to with this? And, and how how do you address it? Well, first thing I had to do was he asked me to, uh, to join the company and help because he knew he was going to need somebody like me to give him cover because I had a reputation and people knew that I was a conservationist and, and all that. So I said, um, I said, okay. And he said, you got to keep in mind, this is a one-way street for you. And I said, you have to keep in mind that if I find someone I don't like, I'm going to leave. And that's not going to be, <laughs> be very good for you. Yeah. 
And he said, if you find something you don't like, I'll be right behind you. So I, I, I felt like I was with the right people. And I gave a speech in Abu Dhabi three years ago at the Economist Ocean Summit, where it was the first time uh, a scientist like me, someone with some credibility in the environmental community, stood up and said, you know, we must do this, you know. And all my colleagues were all saying, no, 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 don't do it, can't do it, can't do it. They weren't offering any alternatives. They were just mm -hmm. saying, don't do that, you know. And, and that's not acceptable. You can't say no without saying do this instead uh, because if you just keep saying no you don't go anywhere and boy were they mad at me i mean i've got every david i've got every uh award they give for diving and conservation over there i can't even keep them on the shelf there's so many of them <laughs> over the years so i so i had the credibility to take this position and um I don't know what's wrong with them. They're they're just they're just they're just blind to a planetary perspective. You've got to have a planetary perspective. You can't look at a square meter of seafloor and say, if you pick this nodule up, you're going to kill these three worms. Therefore, don't do it. You know that that's 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 just not the way it works. Everything we do has an impact. So we're at a point now where we need to find out what what are the least impacts for the way forward and take those. And this, to me, clearly is that we're still getting hell. We had Greenpeace out a thousand miles offshore. This site, by the way, is in, in international waters, a thousand miles offshore. And Greenpeace was out there spray painting our boat, our research boat. This wasn't even a, a commercial. Really? Boat. We're out there doing research, trying to do the environmental impact assessment about whether or not this can be done. We we still haven't decided whether we're going to do it. We're, we're, we're doing the research to and. I used to work with Greenpeace. I used the Rainbow Warrior early in my career. Um, dated one of the founders. I dated the gal that named it the Rainbow Warrior. I mean, I, I know oh, wow. I know their culture. And I, I said to him, I said, God, don't you guys have something better to do? You know, <laughs> you're out here trying to stop something that's good. Go take your boat and run it back and forth in front of the Mississippi River and draw people's attention to reactive nitrogen and phosphorus that's pouring out of that every day and killing the ocean. And I gave them about five or six other things that are unattended. Instead, they're off trying to stop something that, need, that should be done because it's flashy and it gives. <laughs> right. Anyways, so I spent the last couple of years, I didn't think I'd have to do it, but I've been I'm back into publishing papers, science papers about this, trying to explain it in science terms. And I just hope that we get over this nut and we, we can disrupt the mining industry in this direction, because if we do, I think back of the envelope calculation, it's about 30 to 40 percent of what needs to be done on this planet now as soon as possible. If we have any slim chance of getting out of this mess we're in, then this is a, a substantial solution and it's being held up by the environmental community. Do you think it's being held up primarily because it's a new industry and it's so flashy or because people hear mining and they they just assume that we don't know enough about the oceans yet to be able to do this um, yeah. with knowing the impacts. Well, I mean, I mean, backing up a little bit, they, they, they do have cause to have concern because in the past, industry has lied to us. They've said, hey, right. don't, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. And they didn't. But what these folks don't realize is that since that time, there's some sociological, psychological science around 
the fact that our frameworks and our minds, the way we look at the world is about 30 years behind science and reality. Right. They're they're looking at this through like 1970s, 1980s thinking. And since then, we've got the law of the sea. We've got the Convention on Biological Diversity. We've got a whole bunch of very strong treaties that have come into place. There's science that says that this is not as bad as we think. And they're not taking that into account. They're imagining it's 1970 and this company is just rising up out of nowhere and going to destroy the world. You know, right. That's kind of their perspective. But I think we're at a turning point and um, that we will be able to do this. And then I can move on. I mean, this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life. I, I, I did this really because I wanted to give this industry a chance to get going. Exactly. I realized if I sort of laid my body across it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that it, yeah. might, it, might have, it might have a chance. I did was able to recruit colleagues to... Uh, join me. They're not as high profile as I am, but people like, do you know who Jared Diamond is? I've heard the name. Yeah. Yeah. It's germs and steel. He's a brilliant anthropologist, good friend of mine. He's outraged at what these groups are doing and, and he's going to write an essay soon. And and there's a, a bunch of others that feel the same way. It, it, it is the right path. The arguments are just not right. I had an interesting experience last week. I had a phone call from a student. I, I get a lot of phone calls from students who want advice about their careers. I always take them if I can because I figure that's part of my my job as a as a as a senior member of this discipline. So she said to me, uh, Doctor Stone, the reason I called is I wanted to find out how is it you got from where you were to where you are now. And I said, oh, okay. So I told her the story, and. She said, well, I agree with you. You know, she said, I think these are the the solution. And I don't understand why the environmental community is so worked up about it. And I said, well, you know, there you have it. And I said, by the way, where are you from? And she said, oh, I'm from Scripps. And I said, Scripps? Yeah. And who's your advisor? She told me. And her advisor is one of the major critics of this <laughs> industry. And she said, she said, I feel like I'm in a madhouse down here. You know, these people are... They're making decisions based on uh, getting money. Based uh, on, yeah, based on money and fear. and yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just not, they're just not thinking clearly. I guess to give the listeners a bit of a, an idea or a picture of how this actually works. So these nodules are, are sitting on the bottom. It's not like you're going to the bottom and mining a big pit or a hole down there or something. So I, I assume it's robotics or could you just paint a picture uh, of what this actually looks like? I can do better than that. I can show you a very short film that, that shows the whole thing in 60 oh, seconds. Perfect. We go down with a, there's a ship on the surface and then there's a vehicle on the bottom that we haven't come up with the word. It's not really mining. It's like hoovering or vacuuming or something mm-hmm. like that. We're not destroying. We're not cracking. We're not uh, grinding or anything. We're just picking rocks up. And then they get pulled up to the surface and then they get taken to land and then they get processed. And uh, we've got a zero carbon uh, budget and we've got zero waste. And you, you could put this next to a, a nursery school. It wouldn't matter. The processing of these nodules is so hmm. banal. It's a very simple process and it is worth seeing. Um, At this point, we watched the Metals Company video on their actual production system and how they actually are mining or hoovering up these nodules from the ocean floor. To watch it yourself, go to the metals company and it's the head video. It should come up first and you just hit play. 
that tells the whole story there in like 90 seconds. I would definitely say to go check out this video. It really illustrates what this whole mining process would look like and even gives an idea of all of these nodules that are just sitting on the ocean floor that we can use. So go check it out on the Metals Company website. There'll be a link in the show notes as well. But that's pretty much what it looks like down there. You can see how... Really? That many? Yeah. It's considered a fairly depauperate area of the seafloor. Hmm. There's not a lot of big animals down there, although the critics claim that there's all these important microbes. Hmm. We've had the um, opportunity to uh, work with the engineers as they're designing it and optimizing it for what we want. This is very, very interesting. What is the uh, energy source to power all of this? Is it primarily wind? Renewable. We had originally thought that we had to have it near a hydro dam or a nuclear plant or something like that. But then we realized that as long as you're able to pump renewable energy into the grid somewhere else, to, right. to account for what we use, we're okay. That freed up our uh, location search. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty simple and it makes sense. And the other thing is the time frame. You know, all these electric cars that are coming out are coming out like tomorrow. And a terrestrial mine takes 10 to 15 years from conception to production. So we're going to miss it. We could produce these metals next year. If wow. That's how quickly you could scale up. Yep, yep. So this is a solution. It's a real nitty gritty solution. We're not just sitting and talking at meetings and, and speculating and stuff like that. We're, we're, it's a solution. Yeah, and I get the idea that you're a you're a man of action and not a man to just sit around and then not uh, <laughs> not yeah. move forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like to sleep well at night. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious. The nodules are they mostly the size of the one that you have in your hand, or or do uh, they get quite this, large this is a bit of a larger one actually this size we will leave behind by design because this is a place that animals can recolonize on there are some obligate animals that need nodules to live on so we're right. 15 behind the ones that we want they're more like this size in the recording you can see that greg then holds up a nodule that is just a little bit smaller than a ping pong ball so that's the size that they're hoping to collect we are in the age of metals, David. The age of oil is past, and now we're in the age of metals. Because with metals arranged and put in the right systems, we can have a renewable energy uh, system that's uh, a closed loop in terms of material with you know no fossil fuels and all that. So metals is what it's all about. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's definitely something that I have heard more and more about knowing where the metals that power your cell phone come from or what goes into your electric vehicle and the talk about batteries. In my mind, it kind of comes down to a number of years ago when, what was the movie that, uh, Blood Diamond and, and things like that. And, yeah, and yeah. how very similar, very similar. Exactly, exactly. But people fantasize about diamonds and not necessarily about manganese and, uh, and copper. It's us back this, to, the, to the north-south divide that I was talking about earlier. Right. The, the people that are against this are sitting in offices much like you and I are. You know, we have metal all around us. We have a metal car outside. Uh, metal is not just about batteries. It's about cars. It's about bridges. It's about buildings. And fully half the world has not developed yet. Right. And we have people sitting in these nice offices at Stanford and Scripps, and they're very comfortable in their lives. And they say, oh, well, why change anything? Don't do that. That sounds bad. I don't like that. 
they don't think about the global equity that we must attain. So to, to combat that or deal with that, I've come to the realization that it's about education and it's about pulling people from developing countries, bringing them up here to North America or Europe, putting them through school at very importantly at the undergraduate level, not the graduate level, but the undergraduate level, so they can, can understand how we think and how we look at money. And it's very different the way they, than what they do. And I think that will help equip them to uh, engage and, and hopefully sort this out. Because until we take care of the fellow humans on this planet, things will not work. Did you know there are 2 billion people on the planet that cannot afford a bicycle? Wow. Yeah. And if they had a bicycle, it would change their lives. They could get their meager products to market faster and Mm -hmm. maybe $5 extra a month. And if they made $5 extra a month, they could save up for school supplies for their kid and they could take their kid to school on a bicycle. It's transformative. There's a famous explanation of what the washing machine did for women. It completely liberalized them. And we just, we ignore it because it's so... It's so convenient to ignore what's happened to most of humanity or half of humanity, because those of us that are lucky enough to be on this side of the curve, you know, why worry? And I was flying from, I I took a helicopter ride from San Diego to LAX a couple months ago, and I was riding right along the coastline. I was just looking at all the houses and it was obscene the way it was, it was houses built, you know, one, two, three, four up the hillside. And each house had a swimming pool. Each house had a SUV out of this, each house out of that. And there's no way this planet can um, supply that kind of lifestyle for everybody. But that is what people look at and say, that's what we want. So I'm beginning to think that we need to re-envision cities, probably along the coastline, big, big apartment complexes, that are safe, that are pleasant, and concentrate people in those places, and then leave open areas around them where we can have crops growing, we can have some wildlife experiences, and and begin to engineer this planet for 10 billion people. Because right now, we're not doing that. We're just haphazardly going forward at the whim of people's needs, people's desires. And those of us in the developed world are, are running the show. So I've become, and I, and I don't know what caused the North-South divide. I wish I did. I've thought about it a lot. I wrote about it in my book, my last book a little bit. No, no one knows. Uh, some people say it's a Catholic church. Some people say Jared Diamond argues guns, germs, and steel. It had to do with those that had the steel and the germs and the guns first. But th- there was a time in history where uh, a divide was created and we had these two worlds. The reason it's called the North-South Divide is the Prime Minister of, of Germany in uh, 1980s was looking at a globe in his office, and he was noticing that most of the countries south of the equator were undeveloped, and most of the countries north of the equator were developed, and he called it the Brandt Line. His name was Brandt, and mm-hmm. that, that didn't last long. It turned over to the North-South Divide, but it's essentially uh, a very, very steep inequity between um, societies. And, and I don't know what to do about that. Then the climate crisis is accelerating uh, much faster than we thought. Right. 
and I can attest to that firsthand. I've been out looking myself, diving, and I went to the Galapagos Islands a few months ago for National Geographic as one of their guest scientists on one of their Lindblad trips. And and I dived there a lot and I was I was kind of on vacation really, but I switched on my my science brain and I started looking around and I said, something's not right. The Galapagos is where we have the most upwelling anywhere in the world. That's what drives the ocean is bringing this nutrient cold water right. from the deep sea. To, and I saw skinny seals. You don't see skinny seals in the Galapagos Islands. You know, you, you can see the bones on their back. You know, they're skinny. Wow. You see the vertebrae sticking out. And the fish biomass was way low. And lobsters are gone from Cape Cod now. And the Gulf Stream is slowing down. And the whole thermohaline circulation system is uh, beginning to halter. I, I do think that we're on the verge of um, a collapse, a climate collapse, and I think that might follow a civilization collapse in the next couple hundred years, unless we uh, have some technological advances, which we could, some extraordinary things that we could do, pumping gases up into the upper atmosphere, for example, that might cool the planet down. Um, there are things that we could do, and I hope we can do them. But the moment, the best we can do is just keep going to these treaty meetings and pushing solutions like this and doing everything that we can. And we should be talking about it every day from morning till night. You know, my parents were both in World War II, and they told me that during World War II, it was an existential threat to the world. And as a result, everybody was focused on it, hyper-focused on it. And that's all they talked about for four years was the war. And we won it and put that to bed. Well, this, 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 this threat is about a thousand times worse. And, and we're not talking about it. You know, it's mm -hmm. something that we should talk about. And, uh, and I have a belief that if we talk about it enough, it'll happen. So that's why I like podcasts like yours and, and anything that will um, raise people's awareness of this stuff. Yeah, that's exactly what I love being able to speak with people such as yourself, who are clearly very knowledgeable about these things. And, and I get to learn and share this with others as well. What would be the number one thing that you would like listeners to this podcast to take away or to take into their own life moving forward? Yeah, that, that's a tough one. I get that question asked a lot when I give talks and stuff. Everybody always says at the end of the talk, they raise their hand and they say, well, what, what can I do? You know, I, I recycle plastic and I have an electric car. And is that enough? And, and I always say, no, uh, it's nowhere near enough. You've got to do a lot more and you can't do it all either. I said, think about the earth as a sick relative and it's dying. It's having a real hard time. And the things that you can do are like bringing in a cup of hot tea to, the, to your sick relative by these laudable minor adjustments. I said, you need to hire a doctor who knows how to fix this. The Stockholm Center for uh, Resilience is one that I like a lot. And there's any number of groups around. Look at them carefully, though. Make sure they're not phonies and they're greenwashing. I started something called Pole to Pole Conservation. And Right. Yes. We need to talk about that still. And what I did is I, uh, I rethought the whole paradigm of how things are set up. And I realized that we needed to devolve from large bingos to small, nimble, integrated entities within society that ultimately would seamlessly become part of society. This should be not something special. It should be just who we are. It should be 
built into the fabric of how we operate. And I'm writing a, a, an essay on that right now that's going to be part of our annual report. So finding the right organizations to support, you can never go wrong by influencing politicians. If you can, they will listen to you. And if there's a piece of public policy that'll help, write a letter and tell the guy to support it. But in terms of your, your own personal life, focus on the big things that are in your life. Heating your house, driving your car, the amount of travel you do with carbon release in, in airplanes. Don't focus on the small stuff. You know, recycling plastic bags is not going to save the world. It makes people feel good, but it's not going to save the world. That's my advice is, is to be scared. I'm terrified. Be scared, but optimistic and keep learning, keep listening, keep listening to your podcast and let that lead to another podcast. And there's got to be a tipping point that when we talk about it enough, we will all come to the same uh, awareness. And that will then, I think, transform uh, how we do things. Because right now we're not there. And there's so many rich people in the world, so many uber wealthy people in the world that deny climate change. They deny all this stuff because if they didn't deny it, how could they live with themselves? with all that money, you know? Right. If I had money, a lot of money I don't, I would pump it into the developing world in a constructive way. You can't just give them money. There's a lot of waste. You've got to channel it through systems. Right now I'm working on a COVID relief fund for some developing countries in, in the South Pacific, and we're sending it through the Ministry of Health, making sure people uh, it's used properly. We have to send resources to these countries because they don't have enough have a, have a look someday at the mean life expectancy of countries around the world. That's a real eye-opener. When I first started working in Kiribati, this country that I've done quite a bit of work in, the mean life expectancy was uh, 46, I think. Wow. Oh, gosh. I started noticing it. I would come back after a trip, and I'd say, hey, <clears throat> hey where's Johnny? You know, And they'd go, oh, John, oh Johnny died. And then they, they go on to the next thing. I said, wait a minute. What, what, what did you say? Johnny died? And they say, yeah, what happened to him? And they said, oh, Johnny, I don't know. What was it with Johnny? Maybe it was a heart attack or diabetes. I can't remember. They're so accepting of it and used to it, you know. Right. That uh, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's sad. But it's an indicator. Our expected life expectancy keeps going up. I think the developed world is now 76 or 80, something like that. Kiribati has gone up too. They're up to 55 now. But that's a real telltale sign of conditions because the reason it's low is they don't get regular health checks. They don't have hospitals that are adequate. And that's a humanitarian problem. I don't know why the world ended up the way it did. It should have. Why, why didn't it, why didn't it end up with equal development all around? You know, it's, right. it's just like... Well, why did we end up with this big divide? It's absolutely perplexing because it, it doesn't seem to be rooted in anything obvious at all. Well, yeah, I wrote about it a little bit in my book. I argued that countries with, with maritime capability early got an advantage, and that advantage has not been reset. That, that could be wrong. Other people have argued the Catholic Church has been a big inhibitor of growth in especially South America. There's a lot of theories about it. Um, but it makes no sense that the United States is the way it is. And then you go one foot over a border and you're in a completely different universe, you know, right. uh, Canada and America, we're, we've sort of, we're sort of the same thing, you know, 
We're same culture, same economic system. I don't know. There's a gal that I met. You might want to try to get, I could introduce you to her. Her name is Aurora, and she was a mid-level auditor at the UN, 35 years old. And she noticed that the UN had this enormous foreign aid budget that was mostly being spent for um, internal UN offices and executive salaries and stuff. So she ran for secretary general. It turns out you can run for secretary general. There's nothing to stop you from doing it. Well, no one had ever done that before, though, because <laughs> it, it, it's, it's sort of run like the old Soviet Union. You have one person who's the secretary general, and then he figures out who the next secretary general is going to be. And she tried to disrupt that. She got on the ballot, and New York Times wrote her up, New Yorker wrote her up, and they decided to cancel the elections that year. <laughs> but her agenda was simple, and I liked it. She said to me, Greg, the agenda should be everybody in the world has access to education, and everybody in the world has access to the internet. And with those two things, that has a chance at, at balancing things out because you can do business now on the internet, you know, if you're living yeah. in a remote area. And this this meta, what's it called? The meta. Oh, something. Yeah, the new Facebook thing, right? I don't know if it's Facebook, but it, it's a world that you live in and you can conduct business in it and do things. Right. So that's a business you could start on an, an atoll out in the middle of nowhere, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's a good agenda. Education and internet for everybody. It's simple. You know, you can get your, you can get your arms around it. So there's a lot of things out there and I'm glad that you're concerned, you're aware, you're a, you're a, you're a smart guy. Just trying to just trying to soak up as much as I can from uh, incredible individuals such as yourself. What mo and, what uh, motivated you? Did you um were your parents very moral people or did you Yeah. I think my parents were very moral people and very much supported me to follow where my curiosities led and where my my passions led. I've been very, very fortunate to have had the past experiences that I've had and been able to work in an industry to be involved with projects where I get to ask questions and be involved in the decision-making process, but also get to learn more about our natural environment and be able to ask questions that we as a population want to know about how our environment is doing. I've been fortunate enough to have that support to be able to do this. And I've been blown away with the reception to providing a podcast. And I have to say, it was, I was very nervous at the beginning and I still get nervous as well when just cold call emailing people and then speaking with them about topics that I am not very familiar with myself. But I think it's by pushing yourself and expanding and going into places where you're not necessarily comfortable and asking questions where you don't know the answers and are open to learning. That's where you can show that it's okay to ask questions and it's it's okay to not know and to learn. And by sharing that experience with others, I think it's a, it's a more genuine experience for a listener and, and for uh, people who want to learn as well. It's more open and inviting and uh, to show that it's okay not to know and it's okay to learn. Is your business model working? <laughs> My business model with the podcast? Yeah. I mean, I'm not from the revenue point of view. My whole goal was not to turn this into a business. If it eventually did have support, then that would be phenomenal. But for me, this is about me learning and about me being able to start sharing what I'm learning and being able to reach an audience that 
does not necessarily know about these different issues and to help spread the word. And I think to a certain degree, I see this as the next step within my role within science. As someone who has a basic foundation in in some concepts within science, it can be quite daunting to those who don't have that background to even know where to begin with asking questions. And I think we should all be trying to expand the world of everyone else and be able to have these discussions and to spread this knowledge around. And for me, it's it's just been a pleasure just learning. And I've been having so much fun learning the backside of the podcast and the organization of it and, and getting to speak with individuals such as yourself. It affords me that opportunity, which is wonderful for myself. And just even hearing from some of the listeners, and I'm sure you also have a podcast, which I was going to ask you about as well. But for me, at least hearing back from some of the listeners who I haven't met or people that I, I've known from many years ago that have been going through hard times and, and hearing how much that they've gained from the podcast and with me not even being aware that they're listening and how, uh, how much they've, they've been taking from it. It's, it's been a very, very enriching experience and I'm excited to see where it continues to grow to. What, what kind of, what kind of uh, audience do you have? Primarily, it's uh, the demographic is typically between 20 and 40. And typically, it, it's individuals that most do have a bit of a scientific background. But uh, my idea is to try to target those who don't have a scientific background or don't have post-secondary education and how, how to distill these concepts down to bite-sized understandings. And then if people are interested in, then they can listen to the entire conversations with the experts as well to expand their knowledge on that and see where it goes from there. Great. Well, I like you and keep doing what you're doing. You can count on me for uh, future uh, interaction should you need it. Wonderful. Uh, Thank you so much. Yep. Yeah. Do you have uh, anywhere where you would like listeners to learn more about the metals company or your podcast? Would you like to put in a little promotion there for any of that? Oh, thank you. Uh, I'd be happy to tell people um, about this foundation that I've co-founded called Pole to Pole Conservation. Right. Yes. It's a different kind of a thing. It's, um, It's small. We don't have money. We don't pay executive salaries. Most of the leadership volunteers We do pay people. In other words, our overhead is very low. The money that you put in here goes to the problem. And we're sending kids to college, which I think is one of the most significant things you can do. We're also working on um, naturally heat-resistant corals, which I think could be the future of coral reefs in the world. And then we're engaging in opportunities that come along that we see as uh, significant. It's a, it's, a, it's a new way of doing business in the NGO world. It's not the bingo. We're nimble. We're small. We're smart. We're results-driven. Results like. We will make the most out of contributions that people make. You can be rest assured of that. I think our overhead is probably going to be around less than 5%. And that's just paying like accountants and lawyers, yeah. stuff like that. That's something I'd like to pass on. I'd like to pass on for people to be open-minded. They're going to hear a lot of propaganda about deep sea mining and it is propaganda and have them dig in and read and learn themselves and make a decision. And don't just listen to what people are telling them because there are people, I don't know why they do it, but they are protecting their careers or their previous statements or, or whatever. They're not thinking globally. They're not thinking about us. They're not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. They don't have the awareness where they should be. Those are the main things is please learn and uh, 
this is one very timely issue which we could use your help on and that your help mean um, don't sign moratoriums. They've set up a moratorium regime which is designed to kill the industry. They don't tell you that, but that's what it's designed to do. They, they say, uh, oh, you should wait 10 years and then um, learn more about the ocean and then do this. And well, anybody in their right mind knows that in 10 years, there's not going to be any investors and the world will have gone on to another solution, which is like digging up half of Indonesia. And they're not, they're not honest about that. I'm very disappointed in their, their ethics. That's what I'd like the listeners to be aware of and have them think a lot about people in the world that we share on this little teeny planet. If you look at those pictures from outer space, man, that, that atmosphere is razor thin and we have completely polluted it and we've got to stop. It's out of control. So it's optimistic, but it's urgent. People don't often don't know what to do, though. I know that. So if they don't know what to do, uh, if they have resources, find a group that's good and give them some money so that they can operate. If they uh, can actually take actions in their lives, do that. But do something. Everybody needs to do something doesn't have to be climate. Everybody should follow their passion. You know, if, if hunger is what it is, do hunger. If it's uh, women's rights, do women's rights. Whatever it is, do something every day and the world will change. Don't be passive. I couldn't have said it better myself. That is quite the statement to leave on. Greg, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I I've learned so much and this has been such an enriching conversation. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed it too, David. I really have. Thank you so much for listening to today's deep dive episode with Dr. Greg Stone, where we talked all about exploring the ocean, finding out what's deep down there, how to solve the north-south divide, and all about polymetallic nodules and how we can use them for electric vehicle batteries. Thank you so much to Dr. Greg Stone for speaking with us for the podcast. It was a fantastic conversation. I'm so excited to see what happens with the metals company and when we can start actually putting these polymetallic nodules into electric vehicle batteries and into vehicles. You can learn more about the Metals Company and Dr. Greg Stone at metals.co. They've got some great video content where you can really visualize what we've been talking about of these polymetallic nodules on the bottom of the ocean and hoovering them up to be able to bring them to the surface and then take them into vehicles and make a closed loop system. Take a look. It'll make a lot more sense there. Dr. Greg Stone also has a podcast, so if you like this, check his out. It's called The Sea Has Many Voices and can be found on Google, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it, it's everywhere. Be sure to check it out. I'm the host and producer, David Evans, and I'd just like to thank the rest of the team, specifically Paula Pullman, Lee Burton, and the rest of the Aquatic Biosphere board. Thanks for all of your help. And to learn more about the Aquatic Biosphere Project and what we're doing right here in Alberta telling the story of water, you can check us out at aquaticbiosphere.ca. And we also have launched our new media company, ABN, Aquatic Biosphere Network, which you can find at thepublicplace.online and search for the Aquatic Biosphere Network channel, where we will actually be posting all of the video episodes that we're going to be creating this year. So tune in. They won't be out for the next little while, but very excited to start sharing video content as well of our interviews. 
Make sure you're subscribed because the next topic that we're diving into is medicine from the sea, the ocean as our future pharmacy. What we can learn from the ocean creatures and how we can use them for modern medicine. You won't want to miss it. If you have any questions or comments about the show, we'd love to hear them. Email us at conservation at aquaticbiosphere.org. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks, and it's been a splash. <laughs>